0: Well, as we, have, um, as we have asserted before in our Bible classes and in our studies, there are sometimes scriptures and studies that are deeper, they are harder, they're more difficult, they're challenging subjects for one reason or another. And sometimes, that is because of the subject of the study, and sometimes... It's because of our personal experiences and our bias on that particular subject. Yet despite the subject, and however deep it may be, or how hard it may be to pursue, or how difficult it is to discern, as Christians it is important that we understand and that we study them. We have to reason through scriptures to discern the biblical stance and wisdom on these topics. We should study with open hearts, that's our minds, striving to do so with our personal experience and our bias set aside or in the proper place, which is behind God's word, so that we can understand God's judgment and God's wisdom on the matter. That's why I asked Sean to read Acts 17 and 11. This is not going to be a sermon on study. But you'll notice I have highlighted there, these were more noble than those in Thessalonica in that they received the word with all readiness of mind. And they searched the scriptures, whether those things were so. Like the noble Bereans received God's word with that ready mind, I would ask you to do the same. I would ask you to turn the pages of scripture this morning and confirm if the word that is delivered is delivered as it is stated, and that it is not altered or perverted in any way. And if it is, let's give proper place to our personal feelings, so that the word of God can guide our thoughts and our actions. That's the renewing of our mind to ensure that we are aligned with the good and the acceptable and the perfect will of God. I don't know if I've delivered this sermon here before. My notes say I have not. I strive, by the way, to uh, to make note of when I have delivered sermons so that I'm not just repeating them, but that we repeat them at times when they are relevant and at times where maybe our uh, remembrance needs to be stirred up. And that time, once again, feels like it probably is approaching us with the election cycles and with the um, with the opportunity that is being sought both for and against abortion to put abortion back on the ballot in and in front of many state legislators and in, and it was interesting that Jimmy called it out this morning, and in light of the fact that some prominent figures have come out in support of abortion and claim to be knowledgeable Christian feels like a relevant topic. Our own president claims to be Christian and at the same time supports abortion. And my ask is can a Christian support abortion? I will give you my affirmation already this morning or my, um, my statement this morning that a Christian cannot support abortion. It is against Biblical principle. That's why I ask you to listen with an open heart, an open mind, to see if those things are so. And if we know, and it's likely that most, if not everybody in this audience, has heard a sermon on or has been in a study involving abortion, or you've at least heard Christians and their stance on abortion, I ask, can we readily defend it? biblically and can we teach it in a biblical fashion that out of love helps to understand God's stance as it comes to human life? So it's not my intent to divide. It's not my intent to stir up maybe uneasy feelings, and that could be feelings of anger, could be feelings of um, regret and sorrow. I don't know. I don't know the audience. I don't know who And what your experience is in this room nor do i know who might listen to this and how far in the future they might listen to it and it's not my intent just to stir up to stir the pot but to stir up our minds in a biblical way to reason out the subject of abortion by the way this is a long sermon and so i am likely going to break it up think I have found a spot to break it up. And I don't know if that's going to make it short or if it's still going to be long. <laughs> you all know when I get passionate about something, I can preach for a while. But I will try to break it up. And um, hopefully I have broken it up in a good spot. There is a lot of reasoning in the first few slides outside of Scripture intentionally. So that as we get into Scripture, those things hopefully will... Um, resurface and we'll see how they set either in or in opposition of God's word. And so I guess we have to start first. (coughs) I am sorry. I hope this goes away. We have to start first with what it is With the definition I cannot clear it What it is we are discussion, discussing this morning The definition of abortion As we are going to apply it this morning Is a procedure and or a process To intentionally end a pregnancy <coughs> If you choose to do so interesting and discouraging to me at the same time. Go pull if you have a printed dictionary, especially an old one. Go pull and see what definition you find for abortion. And then if you're so inclined, go online pull up dictionary.com google.com and Merriam-Webster.com, and look at the definitions of abortion. You will find this very similarly stated But what you will find is, unfortunately, our human minds interjecting our own bias there. You'll see that Google starts to introduce and try to make it um, comparable to a miscarriage, and that is not the case. They are not one and the same. Merriam-Webster feels compelled to put in there that it is most often before week 26. Well, that's... intended to soften it, right, so that we don't know and understand or fully grasp the fact that it happens and occurs in many cases much, much later than that. But for us and for our discussion, we're going to look at abortion as a procedure or a process to intentionally end a pregnancy. I'm gonna ask you first to, uh, to reason through and allow me to present some, uh, some scientific reasoning to, to you because I find it interesting. <coughs> this comes directly from NASA's website. It is astrobiology.nasa.gov. It's one of NASA's official pages. And their definition of life, you all know and recognize right. that, that we're on this quest to find life on other planets or in the solar system. And all it is going to take is a single molecule, a a single atom that is self-sustaining and able to replicate for us to conclude that there's life somewhere else in the universe. By their own definition, life is a self-sustaining chemical system capable of Darwinian evolution and consider the specific, I don't know why I ended my quotes there, and consider the specific features of the one life that we know, Terrian or Terrarian, earthly life. And I know you can't read it, but I included, just so you know, uh, what's highlighted there in blue bold is what I cut and pasted right there for you. I didn't alter or change it. So by astrobiologist definitions, they're looking for Even the smallest form of life, singular cell would be okay, as long as it is self-sustaining, has a chemical system that is capable of evolving. Break out your biology textbooks or go and search out on the internet a biology textbook. Just go by what you already know and have learned from basic biology. Biology and science will confirm that at the moment of conception, at the moment of fertilization, a zygote is formed. Nobody's disputing that currently. They furthermore confirm that a zygote has genome. It has the ability to uh, build based on those building blocks of life that we know that we call DNA. It is a combination of the DNA, And the father, uh, from the father and mother that contains all of the genetic information necessary to form a new individual. In multicellular organisms such as us, the zygote is the earliest developmental stage. This is interesting to know. By the way, I can't attribute to where I pulled this. This sermon is three or four years old. Um, I need to do a better job of going back this is why kids in school, they teach you to, to keep your references of where you pull stuff from. This came from a textbook. I just don't remember where. I have in my bold there because I want you to consider their next statements. Without natural or unnatural intervention, that zygote... Without natural or unnatural intervention that causes disruption, a zygote will continue to evolve through the biological stages of development. NASA scientists, supposedly some of the most brilliant around, not necessarily in biblical wisdom, but in earthly wisdom, said that life is that which is capable of sustaining itself and capable of evolving,
1: biology
0: claims that at fertilization, at the moment of conception, a zygote has everything it needs to continue to evolve and develop. And without natural or unnatural abortion intervention, that zygote will continue to evolve through the biological stages of development. At conception, a zygote had all 23 pairs of chromosomes. Scientifically and biologically, that should be enough for everyone on earth to reason through and conclude that a zygote represents life. And so we don't have to have a debate about where life begins biologically. And scientifically, and biblically speaking, it occurs at the moment of conception. Science also confirms that at the moment of conception, the zygote communicates to a mother's body that it is not a foreign substance. It prevents the body from attacking it as it would an infection or a tumor. An embryo can communicate almost immediately after conception to the mother's body that it is something friendly. Science also confirms that an embryo has cognitive ability. After three weeks, there are measurable brain waves. Although limited, and we don't know the extent to what that means, We know there is measurable brainwave after three weeks of development. An embryo has structure within two to three weeks of fertilization. Major systems such as the eyes, the ears, the arms, the legs, the blood cells, the kidney cells, the nerve cells, they all begin to develop further within just a short period of time. By science, biological definition, we can confirm that an embryo is a living organism. This ought to stop all the silliness, all the disgusting conclusions that are made when people are passionately supporting abortion. And I hate to say them out loud, but I think you need to hear them so we can reason through this. That is just a lump of cells. That's hogwash. Biologically, scientifically, and biblically, we know that is nothing more than drought. Well, it's just like a cancer cell. That is not true. Scientifically, we know there is measurable brain activity within three weeks. It's more than just a tumorous lump of cells, we need to be able to articulate that in love and dispel that nasty conclusion. And Israel is a living organism. And we haven't even gotten into God's word in depth yet. Arguments we'll need to consider. We'll need to keep planted up here as we move through it. Some of us may hold these. Hopefully we don't but we might or we might have experience with these or we might have loved ones that have experience with these or we have heard these and we are passionately for or against them so we need to put them out so that we can remember these as we do look into God's word well, what about the argument a woman has a right to control her own body I believe a woman has a right to control her own body to a degree absolutely But is that baby's body hers? Does a woman have four arms and four legs and two hearts? No. Nobody in this room or anyone else would reach that conclusion. Not logically. So it's a different body. Scientifically, everything we looked at, it's developing on its own. It has brainwave activity. It is continuing to grow and evolve and develop, which is... What biologists tells us is the sign of life. So if that body is not the woman's, just because she is carrying it, does that give her the right to impose control over that body? And to a large degree, that answer is no. In the term of abortion, that answer is no in the terms of making sure she does everything to make sure that baby is healthy, she has and should exercise that control. What about the argument that we cannot know if a fetus is a human being? If we don't know, shouldn't the benefit of doubt go to preserving life? Scientifically, we've already proven in points two and three, three here, that an embryo is a living entity, I would conclude, and I think this audience would conclude, is it a living human being? But if we can't know, wouldn't logic say we have to err on the side of preserving life? Is it logical to suppose that you pulled up on an accident, something horrible had happened, and you walked up upon a body that was several feet away from the accident, and to the best of your ability, you couldn't tell if that individual was breathing or if their heart was beating, would you grab a shovel and bury them? No. What kind of logical sense does it make then to say, well, we can't know conclusively if it is a live, living human being, then err on the side of cars. Sorry, I'm already defending these instead of just presenting them. Third argument, or fourth, I guess on my bullet points, I have it three in my notes. It's a vile statement. It's better to abort a child than to abuse one. In addition to brainwave activity and cognitive ability to some degree, Science will tell us that an embryo can feel. I don't know how much worse child abuse you could get to than to abort a baby and to cut a living human being to pieces or to burn them or to poison them. That's a completely empty and disgusting argument. We need to be able to present that in love. It's not better. It's still torturous. Fifth argument. We cannot impose our morality on others the script from those of us who would defend against abortion and those who would support it, isn't this the same exact argument that they present when it comes to murder or rape? Well, our moral standard is better because the mother should be able to choose in that instance to abort. There has to be a standard. Evidently, it can't be popular opinion because we're too divided upon it. I'm presenting this to Christians and those who are seeking the truth. And the only right decision that one can conclude as we finish this study will be that that is human life and it should be valued and there is one moral standard that is greater than all of it. Sixth argument, I think. Number five on my notes. People are going to have abortions anyway. Regardless of what we say, regardless of what we do, regardless of whatever laws are imposed. Then why not make the same argument against rape and murder and grand theft, auto theft. People are going to do it anyway, so why should we tell them not to? People are going to do it anyway, so why should we teach them? why those things are wrong. People are gonna do it anyway, so why should we legislate against them? Nobody's making that argument, not to large degree. are some parts of our country that are a little bit. We know with certainty to some degree that laws do affect behavior. For some individuals, they do not they do. Why shouldn't we legislate it? Why shouldn't we teach it? I'll give you my conclusion that you're probably going to hear two or three more times. The best way that we as Christians can convince the world that abortion is wrong and to do it expediently and to stop the killing of innocent babies is not to legislate. It's not to bear influence upon our legislators. We should do that. I'm not advocating that you shouldn't. The best way that we can slow down or stop abortion and to do it expediently is to teach the world God's standard. That God loves them. And God loves and values human life. And that that is a living human being. And it deserves that which God has appropriated for it. Alright, point number seven we need to consider as we move through this. What about rape victims? What about incest? Shouldn't the victim be able to abort the child? That's vile and disgusting, and nobody in this room disputes otherwise. It's unfortunate That sin had to enter this world, and to the degree that of which it has entered, why does an innocent child suffer the death penalty for the action of a father, for an unprepared mother, or both? Why is it that the child bears the punishment and the penalty? Abortion won't bring healing to that woman. Whether or not it's true, I should have looked this up and pulled it from a source that I could quote for you, but it is in my notes. I'm going to state it and I will look back. By note at the time that I made this and compiled this, uh, this sermon, less than 1% of abortions listed as the reason, rape or incest. less than 1% but it is one of the most compelling arguments for abortion. What about? And lastly, on my screen, if we allow abortions, women will die seeking unapproved healthcare. I borrowed this from someone else, some of these bullet points, so those aren't my words appropriated there. If we outlaw abortions, many women will die in back That might be true. But the number of women who will die as a result of seeking unlicensed, illegal, unprepared health care, inadequate health care, Pales in number, pales in number, to the number of babies that we allow to kill every single day. Biblical principle. So far, we're just logically reasoning through abortion. We can already make a compelling case. That a child of conception is life in the mother's womb. We can already make a case then that it's capable of continuing to grow with the nourishment and health and support of the mother's body. It will continue to develop. We can already just apply human wisdom and thoughts to all those things that we just listed out. And one can come to a logical conclusion that we shouldn't support and encourage abortion. But what about from biblical principle? For the sake of time, I'll probably only have a couple this morning, and then, Lord willing, we will continue on next week. First of all, Genesis chapter 1. If you we can and will do so. Flip to Genesis one. Confirm that I have not added, deleted, or altered what I'm going to read from you. I pulled this from I think Bible Hub or Bible Gateway. It's one of the two I have often bookmarked. King James Version. And God made the beasts of the earth after his kind, and cattle after their kind, and everything that creepeth upon the earth after his kind. And God saw that it was good. They were created after their own kind. Verse 26, and God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the fowl of the air, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. So God created man in his own image, and the image of God created he him, Male and female created he them. It's not difficult to reason out that human life was created and purposed differently than all other created beings on earth. Probably a true statement to say human life was created and purposed different than all other created beings. But on earth, Specifically, they were created in the image of God, and after our likeness, and they were to have dominion over the earth. As Christians, we should understand and believe that God is a being of immeasurable worth. Everyone probably already holds and understands that today. Without God for us, there's nothing not as a Christian. He's immensely valuable. Isn't it logical then that humans created in his image and with that likeness are also of immeasurable worth, or at least very significant worth? So the first principle that we have to consider through is that every life matters. God created Every single one of us. God knows every single human being. It's the foundation of really everything in the Bible. About how we treat each other or should treat each other. The New Testament is full of this truth. Love. Compassion. Empathy. Evangelism. Being a Christian means being committed to the idea that everybody matters according to God. Abortion's wrong, then, because it takes the power of life and death from God and gives it to us. When we aren't the creator, according to 25 through 27. We belong to someone who created us. Who has ultimate authority. But we're worth something to him. He didn't just arbitrarily create us. We weren't just one of the created. That might be one of the biggest challenges of man. Maybe second to our own pride. Is the fact that so many people think we're just animals. And that's not true. We were given the ability to reason, and to think, and to love, and to be loved in God's image, or after God's image, appropriated that. After his likeness. You're different. You are intentionally created different. God values life, every life. Second concept to consider, and I think this is probably as far as I'm going to make it here in the next five minutes. Luke chapter 1. Please turn there again, test and challenge. Make sure that I present this in the way that it should be. Luke 1, verses 41 through 44. And it came to pass that when Elizabeth heard the salutation of Mary, the babe leapt in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Ghost, and she spake out with a loud voice and said, Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb. And whence is this to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For lo, as soon as as the voice of thy salutation sounded on mine ears, the babe leapt in my womb for joy. When Mary went to visit her pregnant relative, Elizabeth, the baby kicked, the baby moved, the baby leapt, as the Bible said, in her belly, recognizing she was carrying the Lord. The word used here in Luke is also the same Greek Hebrew that we see in Luke 2, same Greek. And that word is the same for both in this case, the child in the womb, and in the case of Luke chapter two, the child after birth. God doesn't see them different. The Greek language didn't appropriate that as difference. The baby was baby. In the mother's womb and out. It was and is a human being. Life occurs at conception. Personhood, livelihood was never measured by age or stage of development in the scripture. From the moment of conception in the depths of the womb, the one was recognized as a human being. Created in the image of God and after his likeness. That's why in Matthew chapter 1, the terminology there is with child. Not that you are pregnant and will have a child, but that she was with child. There was no distinction that it wasn't yet a human being and a baby The angel Gabriel told Mary that her relative Elizabeth conceived a son. At the moment Gabriel had told her, John had not been delivered. True. Gabriel, through inspiration and through God's um, deliverance to him, might have understood future state that it was going to be a man-child. But the most logical conclusion is that Gabriel already knew in Elizabeth's belly was a man-child. And it wasn't distinctive that it wasn't yet a child. It was, and it is. And it's the only logical conclusion as a Christian that you can draw in these verses, and we'll continue to add to them. There's other passages that, Lord willing, we're going to look at. Job 10 Psalm 139, Jeremiah 1. That shows us that there is a special relationship with the unborn child to God. He already knows them. He already formed them, one of them says. He already covered me in my mother's womb. There's a relationship there already, already there, that already exists between God and that child. God doesn't appropriate the fact that they have to be outside of the mother's womb. Be a living human being. Some argue that abortion is not murder because the fetus has not yet received the breath of life in Genesis twenty-seven. I want to address that. That was a very spec. I'm sorry, Genesis two, verse seven. I said twenty-seven. Genesis two, in verse seven, that was a very specific purpose. Jimmy told us this morning, Adam was created from the dust of the ground. The breath of life hadn't been breathed in him yet. It's not the same as a human embryo, a human child. Adam sprang from existence, fully grown. He wasn't created as a baby, and God blew him up like a balloon until he was aged. He was created as man. Just like all the other animals, male and female, after their kind, ready to do that which God would have them to do to populate the earth. So it's not the same application. It's, it's a weak argument. Each and every one of us receives the breath of life long before we exit the mother's womb. We're also, Lord willing, going to look at Genesis 17, Genesis 21, Ruth 4, if you want to look ahead. No conception ever occurred that is not the result of God's created purposes. It's a heavy thought. It's not to say that man didn't impose, man didn't usurp God's authority. But God knows that individual. Therefore, you and I have no business tampering with what God has created and purpose. I love, love, love. Um, Esther, I believe it was chapter 4, when we pointed out this morning. And where she is told, who's to know that this is, I'm paraphrasing my own words, who's to know that this is not the sole purpose upon which you were put on this earth? We know that that unborn child that that mother is carrying might not be the sole purpose that we put here upon this earth. As a Christian, we can not take out of God's hands what has been appropriated as the creator and the owner of all creation and usurp our desire and our will to so allow the It's not biblical not as a Christian. Those that teach some such are either reading and studying a perverted account for the scriptures, which could be a reality. There are hundreds of perversions now of God's word. They're unlearned, uneducated, ignorant of God's truth. they can't let their personal experience or bias get out of the way. Lord willing, I'm hoping we can continue through, probably for the next two weeks. Maybe we'll get it all done next week, but yeah. We're going to look at more and more and more verses. And I proclaim that we will get to the truth that most of us probably already hold, but not all of us. That a Christian can't support for Contrary to God's will. Contrary to God's love. So we should influence those around us. Lawmakers. Those who have the ear of lawmakers and legislators. Those that we have the authority to put in power. Those that we have the opportunity just to teach and to preach. Let me tell you how God, how much God loves you. If they understand how much God loves them, then we can help them understand how much God loves the loves little child. I'm going to tell you a couple of things as I close. One which I cannot confirm to you is a true story. But I'm going to tell it anyway. And it's an earthly story. But I know of a man... sitting with at least one of his sisters who told me a story that his mother was having complications with her fifth child. Early 1950s, I believe. Maybe 1940s, late 1940s. And she was encouraged, if you want to live, you need to abort this child. Because the likelihood is there that you will you will have serious harm, if not death yourself, prior to delivery. And there is a good chance that your child will be stillborn. And sometime shortly before birth, it was claimed, the the way the story was told to me, that they couldn't confirm a heartbeat on that child. And they encouraged her again, we should induce labor We should abort this child for your safety. And she said, No. It will be what it will be. And she was confident that both she and her child would be safe. And her fifth child was born safe and matured into manhood, as did her sixth child. And so she overcame that which was the advice of her doctors. whether or not that story is true, I can't tell you because I can't talk to my grandmother and I'm eternally grateful that she said no because I can stand before you if that is a true story so I am biased and I am passionate because I have personal experience potentially and I am biased and I am passionate because I have studied it out. And the only thing I can conclude is that God loves me. He loves you. And he loves the little children. Mm-hmm. And life is at the moment of conception. God knew before the moment of conception. We'll study that. Man doesn't have the right to take that. And the what ifs and the what ifs and the what ifs and the what ifs. Or just noise to the wayside. And they mean something to us. Because of our personal experience. Because of our feelings. Those individuals are being truthful to you. When they defend that which they believe. But man, I know some. I know some children that the world would call imperfect. That are precious. And so do you. I'm so thankful for those little kids. Thankful that their mothers persevered and delivered their children. I'm not going to read that. I'm going to conclude because I told you I'd do that 10 minutes ago, 11 minutes ago. Study it out. Reason it out. Know that God loves you. Know that God loves all his created beings. Every soul is precious to him. Let that be your song. Let that be your anthem. So that people see that in you. And can ask of the hope that lies within you. Maybe that will afford you to tell them about Jesus. And maybe that will afford you to tell them and help them understand that he is the source of salvation. Maybe they might be one who is struggling with this decision. Or where they stand on it. And you'll have the ability to teach. In love. This hasn't so much been a sermon, I guess, to encourage. One to respond to the Lord's invitation. But I've touched touched hearts and emotions with this study before. I had a good sister tell me. Sometimes mothers make the best decision based on the doctor's advice, and that is true. And I am not the eternal judge. All I can do is give voice to God's word. But if that is reality, and that mother is suffering with that decision, we have a loving God that can make her whole. And that needs to be the message, not the what if. And can I make it right Based on my earthly feelings and my earthly logic. Align with God's standard. And let's just hold that up to be true. And know that if there is something in the past, God can forgive me of those sins. I can be whole. We know faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. Romans 10:17. We have to believe. After hearing God's word, whether that's studying or hearing it verbally um, given, one has to believe, Hebrews eleven six. 6, for without faith, one is lost. And Luke 13, 3 says, I tell you nay, but unless you repent, you shall all likewise perish. So we have to hear. We have to believe the word of God. We have to believe that Jesus is the son of God. Without faith in him, all is lost. Without the resurrection, all is lost. Romans 10.10 tells us we have to confess. With the heart, we believe unto justification. With the mouth, confession is made unto salvation. Acts 2.38 tells us we have to be baptized for the remission of sins. Mark 16.16 tells us we have to both believe and be baptized. Revelation 2.10 tells us to be faithful unto death and we'll inherit that crown of life. And that will be what we strive to do. We probably won't do it purposely. Maybe it won't be anything related to this study this morning. Maybe it will. Maybe simply it'll be our stance and where our stance has been and where our stance has been. Should be. And that it is aligned with God's word that we need to change. Maybe it's something else that stands between you and God. That has put you outside of a right relationship with him. You have an advocate with the Father that is ready to plead on your behalf. And God is ready to forgive you. And all you have to do is repent and turn from that and pray to him for forgiveness. And he is just to give it. If there's anybody here this morning that has not put on Christ and you need to do so, you haven't fulfilled Christ's invitation in the way that the Bible gives it in its entirety and you understood that that's what you're doing, we can make it right. But if you have and there's something else separating you from him, we want to help you. Your brothers and sisters love you. We don't want to know what you've done because we want to know what you've done. We want to help bear your burden. And we want to help pray on your behalf. And we want to help each other along to that home in heaven. So if anybody has need to respond, please come as we stand and sing.